Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, uh, December the 16th, 2013, and it's not Friday, 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 but we have a Friday-style show with your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, again, 866-65-THINK. For uh, those without letters on your dial pad, for whatever reason that is, that number is 866-658-4465. Now, if you call in right now and go, I want to talk to Jack, you're going to hear a voice message thing saying, well, dude, leave your message. Because this is not live radio. No, this is a podcast. That means I record it, I publish it, and then you can listen to it now. You can listen to it tomorrow. You can listen to it Forever, as long as the internet remains and I am able to keep it hosted somewhere, you will be able to listen to this. And if you download it, as long as you have electricity, even if you're making it with a potato in a ditch, as long as you have electricity and a means to play it, you'll be able to hear it forever. This is information made eternal as long as the audience continues to make sure they keep that information available to themselves and to others. Um I think audio today, podcasting today, the way we're doing it right here, is in many ways um, what writing was when people first became literate in mass. Um, up until then, you know, there were people that could read and there were people that could write and then there were people that told you what it said and what it meant. And as society became educated, more and more people began to write and people began to exchange information with each other through writing and and what have you. But today, we we have that on the internet with blogging and things like that. But audio, I think, is more powerful. I don't know how I got off on this, but I'd like to tell you why I think audio is the most powerful form of communication available in the world today. Number one, you don't need expensive equipment to do it. I do this podcast with a simple computer, probably no more powerful than most of you have. I have a microphone that costs a hundred bucks. Um, I have web hosting that's way, way, way beyond what most people would need to start doing something like this, way beyond it. And there's resources that make it available if you don't feel the need to control your own stuff, but you could be doing it tomorrow morning. And uh, so it's ease, ease of entry. Uh, you, all you have to do is have something to say and, and be good at saying it. The next thing about audio that I think makes it so powerful, and it's what I think really makes it the most powerful, it is the only form of conveying information that is truly something that can be provided to another person while they're doing something else. And what I mean by that is even if you pretty much present with audio, if you're on video, you will use certain things like, I'd say, it was about this big, and I'm showing you with my hands and what have you. Um, or you're using vis visual aids or things like that. There's a reason we have video. It allows for greater communication. But it requires the person that's watching the video to pay attention, which is hard to do like when you're driving in your car. Many of you listen to me driving in your car. Um, or if you're out gardening and you have your headphones on and while you're, you're pruning a tree or something like that or you're mowing the lawn or you're jogging, these types of things are very, very difficult. People listen to the show working out in the gym um, or just taking a walk. And all of those things are all but impossible to do while watching video and certainly while reading. So audio goes everywhere today. And it can be done when people have the time to listen or when they don't really have the time to listen. But whatever they're doing, 
isn't that complicated. Many people have jobs that are not that complicated. They get very, very good at them. They become repetitive, and they have a set of earbuds in, and they're listening to TSP at work. Or there's people I know that even in their, their shops and stores, small companies that actually play TSP on the radio for the whole shop to listen to while the people work. Uh, that can't be done with written, and it can't be done with video. Audio is the only thing that can travel that way. And I think why it's why it's a big part of liberating the minds of Americans who have been convinced that the way that they've been told things should be is the way things are and will always be. Well, they're not. They're not the way things are. They're the way things have been made by illusion. They are the way that things have been made by people who have decided that <clears throat> they know what's best for you. They're the way that things have been made. And I don't know how I got off on this tirade, but it's a good time for me to share something with you. My intern, Josiah, asked me to do him a favor this weekend. He asked me to write the intro to the first ever edition of Brink of Freedom magazine. And, uh, of course, I said yes. I mean, first of all, he's my intern. It's part of my job to, to, to help him develop what he's doing. Um But it was also an honor because what he's done with Brink of Freedom, and if you haven't seen it yet, you need to. Brink of Freedom uh, is amazing. I'll put a link to Brink of Freedom in the show notes today. Um, but he's put together an amazing consortium of authors um, and writers to put just massive amounts of information together. He got that site up and running the first month he was here. And he's taken it to a point now where they're taking the best of it every so often and putting it together in a digital magazine. And uh, he had this intro that he'd written. It wasn't bad, really. But he said, can you can you maybe do better, take a, a swipe at it? And I think that even with everything I just said about audio, um, whether it's written, whether it's video, whether it's, it's, it's audio, whatever it is, we are reaching a point where people are starting to ask questions. And uh, a lot of what's going on at Brink of Freedom are people that have come into the TSP fold as guests and now are writing as authors for Brink of Freedom. Audio reached them and, and, and took what they did. And that's, that's truly powerful technology. When you can take one technology and leverage it to the end of another, then you really start to stack functions, permaculture. But anyway, I wrote this intro, and I'd like to share it with you guys today. And You know, get on over to Brink of Freedom and get involved there and, and consider subscribing to this uh, new magazine that Josiah will be putting out as it becomes available. So here's my intro. Can you hear it? Can you feel it? Is it calling you? Are you on the brink of it? My friend, do you even remember her name? Let me whisper it to you. Freedom. Is there a more beautiful word? Yet in our modern society, words like freedom and liberty are bantered around by those who impose their will upon others. Long ago, those in power determined that rather to enslave a man in chains, it was better to have your prisoner build his own cell and teach his children that a decorated cell was the equivalent of liberty. To consider which mobile metal coffin took them to and fro to a job they hated was a symbol of status. To truly believe that a life was best lived in pursuit of what another told them would make them happy someday. Today, a once mighty and independent people resemble more a field of sheep rather than a nation of bold and independent men and women. A people who have been stripped of knowledge about the real world, stripped of an understanding of the virtue of true work, and worst of all, stripped of the skills that make a person truly independent. Yet we are not a nation of sheep, 
No, we are a nation of humans. Burning in each of our hearts is the true being, one that was designed and optimized for freedom. Slowly, an awakening is upon us. The prisoners are asking questions, reclaiming what they have lost. And now many are standing at the brink of freedom. Enjoy the journey. I thought that was really cool, and I, I think that I would have never written those words if Joe hadn't come here and built something as awesome as Brink of Freedom. So what started out as a basic intro turned into a rant on the power of audio and went back full circle to the power of the written word. Check it out today. Uh, you can find Joe's website at brinkoffreedom.net. Again, brinkoffreedom.net. And uh, consider getting a... Uh, Subscription to his new digital magazine as it comes out. So a little bonus segment there. Let's go ahead back up, though, before I go on and take your calls and some other things I want to cover today. Let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is BulkAmmo.com. Hey, if you need ammo, you got to get it. And if you want it, you should want it in bulk. There is really little point to having an AR um, with the capability of taking 30-round magazines with a high rate of fire and having like one box of ammunition. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, if you want to use the capabilities of that weapon, you need two things, the ammo to do it, and the other thing is the ammo to train with. So God forbid if you ever really need to do it, you have the skills to go along with it. Ammo is part of how we train, and it is really something that a lot of people tend not to talk about in the prepper world anymore, and I'll talk about why that is in a bit, but when it comes down to it, If we ever get into a really bad situation, it is the gun that will separate the free from the enslaved. And the gun that will be used either to preserve liberty or to impose tyranny, It's it's that's the choice. And that means either you're prepared to defend your liberty or be subject to another man's tyranny. It's what our nation was founded on. And the gun is only as useful is the ammo that goes along with the gun. Check it out today, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor, the sponsor that was is going to be officially with the Survival Podcast for five years on January 1st, 2014. Something really special. The sponsor that gives away their discount membership. I mean, this is one of their flagship products, folks. I mean, when you, I, I know I make my entire living off of a membership program just like they give you for free if you're part of mine. That, that's amazing. Uh, their discount buyers club is $49, and it gives you discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. And they've got it all, from the tactical to the practical and everything in between. Check them out today. Um, a great way to get to their website. Yeah, for a, different, a little bit different of a domain name, prepared.pro, prepared.pro, because they're professionals at helping you prepare. Check them out today, Safe Castle Royal. Best way to get to SafeCastleBullCamo.com and all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. That way you know you're dealing with an actual sponsor, not some brand pirate, because brand piracy is out there, folks. It's rampant. Um, if you ever decide you've got up a really good name for a business and you set it up and you buy the .com, I'd recommend you immediately buy the .org and the .net at a minimum. Uh, is in addition to it, and you'd probably, if it's a two-word or three-word, you know, buy the, at least if it's a two-word, buy the hyphenated version. So if you're going to move Joe's Preps, Joe's Preps.com, Joe's Preps.org, Joe's Preps.net, 
Joe's hyphen preps, et cetera, et cetera, agnosium. At least those six, because uh, those are the primary ones that people jump on to uh, pirate a brand once you build it. Don't overworry that, though. You can't have something stolen that you haven't built yet, so build first. Anyway, uh, with that wrapped up, Lix uh, reminds you guys about the Member Support Brigade. We just had an awesome sale with plenty of interest. So there probably won't be a lot of people joining this week, but if you do want to join the brigade, it's still a great time to do so. $50 a year or 5 bucks a month gets you access to the Survival uh, Podcast. Members Support Brigade, where you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Massive discounts on so many things you're probably buying anyway. And you'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps active duty, prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys do qualify for a discount. If you email me with service discount in the subject line, And tell me a little bit about who you are and what you're doing or what you did in your, if your prior service. I'll email you back the details so you can claim your discount. Please do that in two sentences-ish. Don't write me a whole dissertation. I won't have time to read it. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I want to start out with our year, year 1267. And I, I want to talk about this from uh, kind of a weird thing in a second, just maybe if you call it weird. Anyway, um, the only thing I saw really interesting in 1267 was uh, Roger Bacon, right? Roger Bacon. Many people have heard the name Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon completes his work, Opus Magis, and sends it to Pope Clement IX, who had requested it to be written. The work contains a, a wide-ranging discussion of mathematics, optics, alchemy, astronomy, astrology, and other topics. This includes what some believe to be the first description of a magnifying glass, Bacon also completes Opus Minus, a summary of Opus Magus, later the same year. So it's a light version of an e-book, maybe is the way to think about that in modern terms. The only source for his birth is a statement in Opus Tertium, uh, written in 1267, that 40 years have passed since I first learned the alphabet. The 1214 birth date assumes he was not being literal and meant 40 years had passed since he matriculated at Oxford at the age of 13. If, he had, if it had been literal, his birthday was more likely to have been around 1220. So uh, they think that he was born somewhere prior to 1214 is what it sounds like to me. Anyway, so I think there's a couple of interesting things there. One, all that cool stuff that this guy had uh, uh, compiled in 1267 uh, is chartered by the Pope. That, that's interesting. The fact that he went to Oxford at the age of 13... Uh, is kind of interesting. Now, Oxford was a little different than it is today, but it, basically, those who were seen as promising had education on some levels far more challenging at this time than many people do, you know, after secondary school, you know, going into, going into university, I think, some of the, you know, for what's available at the time anyway. Um, But here's the hole in this. If I read that to you the way that I did, and that was all you and I knew, you would think that, well, Bacon sends this manuscript to the Pope, and all this stuff went down and became part of the record. But um, Alex, who's awesome, um, sends me this his little thing on 1267. Bacon goes bust. Friar Roger Bacon writes a major opus on science that mentions gunpowder. I didn't know that was in there. But that's not the big catch here. He sends it to the Pope for approval before publishing. But Pope Clement IX dies, probably without reading it. Friar Bacon's major work will not see the light of day until 1897. 
The same work discussed spectacles for the far-sighted. I think there was a pun in there somewhere, inadvertently. Really? Um, yeah, I think there's a pun. Far-sighted, and they didn't get it in time. So the Pope died, and that's kind of missing. That's kind of missing from this little thing here. And when I look down and I see deaths, I don't see the Pope dying. So that means the Pope must have died maybe in 1268. We'll find out as we go forward. I'm sure his his date of death will be noted. But um, that's missing from that. So what does that have to do with today's show? Somebody on TSP, well, it's Insidious, who's just an awesome commenter, challenges me sometimes in really, really positive ways. I really like Insidious and his contributions on the blog as a commenter. And for those of you that might be listening to the show for the first time today, um, every episode of TSP is published at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can get it on Stitcher Radio. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it in a, probably a multitude of places I'm not even aware of now. Um, somebody special is even creating pirate radio for you guys that will have TSP on it. I'll tell you more about that in the future. Anyway, um, but it's all over the place. But wherever you're getting it from, if you go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and pull it up, you can get this episode and every other episode that's ever been published all the way back to 2008. You can listen to them. You can download them. You can learn more about the show. But each episode has a series of show notes. And that's where you can interact with me, tell me you think I'm full of it, tell me you liked what I had to say, ask me a question, whatever, in the comments section, and interact with other members of the community. Well, Insidious said that he'd like to see a survival wiki. So I've got some domain names I picked up, following advice I just gave you, and uh, we'll be setting up a wiki. I'm not sure what software I'm going to use yet, but I'll get it done today. It's not hard to set one up, and I'd like to set up a survival wiki, and I need to hear from people, and if you put survival wiki in the subject line and email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, uh, if you'd like to be part of the initial team to develop it, to like start getting content in there, including like the content of how do you use the damn thing. Uh, I am not good with wikis. I know how to read them and get information out of them, and I think that's what 90% of people on the internet will do with a wiki. Uh, I need to figure out things like how do we keep people from spamming it? Uh, do we set it up so that you have to be approved to be an editor? And I think that's the way to do it. And I would like an initial development team to just start going, people that can be trusted. So I do not want to hear from people right now that say, I think this is a good idea and I don't know much, but one day I want to learn. No. If you have experience as a wiki editor and uh, you'd like to be part of the initial team, just start dropping information and do a page about me. Do a page about TSP. Do a page on ferroceum rods. Do everything in the permaculture. Um, just start knocking them out as you see fit. Um, we could make it the definitive resource for prepping. And I think that would be awesome. It would be a free resource that we would provide out of this community. Maybe we'd get a little notoriety for it or what have you. But basically, it's just a great idea. It's something I have the resources to set up. But I need people that, you know, that would do some editing and, and, and plug some stuff in. And that doesn't mean you have a new job or anything like that. It means like maybe once a week you knock out one little thing that takes 10 minutes on one term or two terms. And, uh, and what have you. And from there, we can kind of develop a framework that other people can be led into. But I think if we just have it completely barren and people that don't know anything show up, it could be a disaster. So anyway, that's something that you could be part of. Again, survival wiki in the subject line. And send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com if you'd like to be part of that initial development team. Next up, I keep getting a lot of questions on Mulligan Mint and what's going on over there. And, I try not to say too much about this on the air because it, it just goes down this road. But uh, if you don't know anything about Mulligan Mint right now, the best thing to do is nothing. 
Okay, not even worry about it. If you do and you're wondering what's going on, uh, unfortunately, that's the same answer I have for you about what's going on. I know nothing like Sergeant Schultz, but not the way Sergeant Schultz claimed it. I really don't know much about what's going on right now. This is what I know. Uh, Rob Gray stepped away as, as president of the company during the restructuring bankruptcy. He did that because the corn-appointed trustee is completely in charge of everything at Mulligan Mint and was basically ignoring everything that he said, and he felt that no one was paying attention to him. There's been some tension there, and there is some things going on behind the scenes between Rob and the trustee that I cannot make public. I know because I'm a creditor in the bankruptcy, and every creditor in the bankruptcy, uh, every unsecured creditor in the bankruptcy knows this. Okay, So those things are... and. You, two people fighting with each other, you just don't go there. My knowledge is what anybody looking at the Mulligan Mint website would see right now. The trustee has made a determination that it's important to fill all back orders, has closed down new orders, and is taking uh, and filling back orders. But I can't verify what's being filled in what order, at what rate, and what the projection is for how many will be filled. The trustee has stated that he has no intention to move the company into liquidation, that it is his intention to bring the company back into normal operating status, that it's important to get these orders out. My concern is, without running a profitable front end, how do you afford to do this on the back end? Um, I know there's some disputes over some property, some personal versus business property going on, but I don't think that's really germane to what the big mile-high view is. If you are waiting for an order, all I can tell you is to contact them and ask them what the status of your order is. My belief would be that based on the judgment, we're still in the same position. All orders placed after the bankruptcy would take precedence over all orders placed before the bankruptcy. That is all that I know. And frankly, at this point, um, since there's nothing I can do to make them do anything, It's all I have the energy to know. I've done everything I can to stand by my friend Rob and his brother David Gray uh, through this. I don't know what the future holds. If I know anything else that I can tell you, I will. Um, and I wish everybody there the best. The other question I've gotten is, does this mean there won't be any more survival podcasts, silver, copper, etc., cetera, uh, in conjunction with Mulligan Mint? I don't know. Um Does this mean there won't ever be any projects done with, with silver and, and gold and copper with Rob Gray again? Uh, the likely answer to that is no, it doesn't mean that. I just don't know how that would happen in the future. I don't know if Mulligan will return and Rob will come back. I don't know what's going to happen. And if I knew, I'd tell you, and I don't. So that's, that's all I've got on that right now. Um, I just wish him the best. Moving on to something a little different before I take your first call today. Um, there's a really cool blog. Uh, a kind of a blog network called Prepper Chicks. And uh, it's you know women of prepping and female survivalists and all kinds of good stuff like that. And I like what they do. And I don't mean anything I'm about to talk about right now to incentivize, you know, incentivize that I don't. Uh, but I do think that even people that really get it right 90% of the time can miss it once in a while. I don't think this is wrong, uh, but I think they missed it here. I got an email today from someone And there's a, a website called twoparagraphs.com, which apparently is like a place where you can publish short, concise, cool stuff. And there's all kinds of crap on there. And Prepper Chicks have an article published on there today, December 16, 2013. And it's called Prepper Chicks. Uh, yeah, Prepper Chicks Phasing Out Anti-Government Militiamen. Question mark. The question mark gives me some hope. Let me read it to you. Americans who call themselves preppers are part of a growing self-sufficiency and sustainability movement. Don't call them survivalists. 
Preppers are, quote, regular people with normal lifestyles and jobs who prepare for a variety of reasons where they're neutral or man-made, end quote. While both preppers and survivalists tend to stock up on canned foods and plant survival gardens in their cellars, survivalists tend to be motivated by the possibility of economic collapse, natural disasters, terror attacks, and asteroid strikes, to name a few impending catastrophes. Preppers tend not to worry as much about threats. They just want to become less dependent on man-made systems. Uh, members of a growing American Preppers Network are teaching each other self-reliance with articles, podcasts, and videos demonstrating simple household tricks like unclogging your toilet, don't call the plumber, and repairing a broken zipper, don't throw away another pair of perfectly good jeans. Sure, the end-of-the-world survival kits are for sale on the network's website. There's a reason. Uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of domestic, everyday information like how to grow your potatoes, vacuum seal clothing, how to cook with the sun. Perhaps the content reflects a growing number of women involved in the APN. On American Preppers Radio, female preppers can tune in to shows like Homestead Honey Hour, where guests like the Hillbilly Prepper gal talks about what got them started prepping. Many preppers call in to share stories about how prepping helped them through long bouts of unemployment, getting out of debt, convincing their kids... Uh, particular grown kids st still living at home, how to start prepping. Okay. I don't think there's anything in essence wrong with that, but I think the entire angle of, you know, phasing out the anti-government militiaman and drawing a line of demarcation between prepper and survivalist is a hundred percent off the mark. Especially the line of demarcation between prepper and survivalist. I posted a comment there right now. It's the only one. I don't know that this two-paragraph site is that popular, but uh, maybe we can give them some business today or something. Anyway, here's my response. As long as you worry about a label, you are missing the entire point. Prepper has been made just as radical by media now as survivalists. You, I, and anyone who would step out of the way of a moving truck is a survivalist, period. Survivalist, one concerned with surviving. The media will mock any term you create for yourself. Prepper's a rather new word, one many embrace as a soft version of survivalist. One created due to the stigma around survivalist. Well, girls, that lasted about three years. The media grabbed the word, and now they have doomsday preppers. And there is a ton more in the pike. I get casting calls all the time, and they have prepper, prepper, prepper all over them. What you call yourself isn't important. What you do matters. As long as you are escaping the world that society has embraced as, quote, normal, end quote, you are to be mocked, demonized, radicalized, etc. What you don't seem to get here is a housewife packing up from the burbs and homeschooling her kids on a small farm is a bigger threat to the system than a gun-toting militiaman, whatever it is you mean by that, by the way. A family that establishes a real urban farm, pulls it off, doesn't get shut down, and begins selling neighbors eggs, milk, and fresh veggies. The same family that gets neighbors now questioning their own lives, meds their children are told they have to take, and food their kids are forced to eat in school is considered radical, unbalanced, and dangerous by the system. And guess what, sister? We are dangerous. Dangerous to the people being told you must live life as it has been dictated. We are dangerous to that paradigm. And we should be by, and we should, and we means all of us be very proud of that fact. Very proud. The gun is a tool. I have many. I will defend myself, my family, my community, and frankly, any random stranger being victimized anytime if need be with my gun. That said, I have done more to shake the establishment with Hugel bets. We have, we estimate that we have inspired miles of them, literally miles of them. 
We have inspired a known over 5,000 backyard gardens. That's, that's really, folks, off the script here, that's really the number that we absolutely know that we are at minimum. At least 5,000 of you have planted backyard gardens because of us. Um, I will never lay down my guns, but my shovel, my excavator, my chickens, my geese, and common sense are bigger and far more powerful weapons. The entire point of the hype, nonsense, and hysteria around how mainstream media portrays is designed to divide us. Please don't do their jobs for them. Don't try phasing out the quote-unquote militia, man. If so, you are simply phasing out man, period. Quote, I asked, sir, what is the militia? It is the whole of the people, except for a few public officials. End quote. George Mason. Quote, for a people who are free and who mean to remain so, a well-organized, well-organized and armed militia is their best security. End quote. Thomas Jefferson. I am happy that survivalism, prepping, whatever we call it today, is making inroads into more and more people's lives. Because it is only common sense to be prepared and to take responsibility for ourselves and our children. But if you get into the world of trying to soften words, you're playing their game, and they will beat you every time. Play our game. Do. Teach. Prosper. Aid others. Stand tall. Make no apologies for who we are ever. Be strong and be gentle at the same time. This is the way of a true survivalist. We don't fight a war of words with more words, nor with a rifle. A rifle is a defensive tool in our hands. No, we fight with actions, deeds, examples, and above all, love. And those words come directly from a gun-toting militiaman. So please don't go phasing us out, as you and others may just need us someday, though I pray that day never comes. I'd like to thank the gal who wrote that. I just know she's from Prepper Chicks. It doesn't say which person over there. There's a lot of them over there uh, wrote that. But I, I think that uh, even though I took exception to some of it, it, it leads to some really important, deeper understanding, and that's great journalistic work if someone's able to do that. Um, but I don't think we should be dividing ourselves as we're preppers and they're survivalists or they're survivalists and we're preppers. I think it's nonsense. I think it's nonsense. The word prepper is nothing but another word for survivalist. It's not, let me say it again. The word prepper is nothing, 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 nothing but another word for survivalist. It was a word created by people who knew they were survivalists, but didn't like the way they were being portrayed, so they made a new word so that people would stop betraying them as what they were not. And all the media did was go, oh, that's your word now? That's the new buzzword. We picked it up on Twitter and Facebook. Now we know who you are. Let's make you look like a bunch of crazy assholes with a new word. That's it. Well, folks, don't play their game. Don't play their game. You want to lose to me? Come play my game. You want to beat me? Get me to play your game. Our game is action. Our game is impact. Our game is changing lives, one person, one family, one community at a time. It's doing so because it makes sense and it's common sense. And it's the way our grandparents lived. If you want to fight a war of words with people that have more access to deliver words than you, you'll lose. The reason our words are powerful is because our deeds and actions are more powerful. Think about that today as we go through your calls. What a long intro section, but hopefully this will be an awesome show. Anyway, first call of the day. Hey, Jack, this is Neil. And I had a question about deer fats. I uh, recently killed three 
on a, uh, a hunt and I had it all in the cooler and I decided that I would try to start using more of the deer instead of just the uh, shoulders and hindquarters and back straps, center loins, etc. And uh, so I want to start with the fat. I think I'm going to have to move into it uh, a little bit at a time uh, instead of uh, trying to use everything all at once. But I was wondering on how I can process that and some things that it would be useful for it. Uh, and then also how I can store it. So I would appreciate uh, hearing your answer, and I look forward to it. Thank you for everything. Bye. Okay, well, it's it's kind of better to think of what you're asking about as tallow than fat. Fallow, tallow and fat are, in fact, the same but different and the same but the same. What I mean by that is tallow is a layer of fat that exists on the outside, generally, of a muscle. It's not intramuscular fat. It's it's a, a hard, white, and, and pretty much a tasteless substance. And that, that's good for a variety of reasons that we'll discuss in a moment. Um, especially when we're looking at an animal like a deer. When you, when you get into animals that are ruminants like deer or beef and sheep, uh, tallow is pretty flavorless versus fat, which has actually quite a bit of flavor in it. Uh, but when you want to use this stuff, the, the reason I think that a lot of people don't is because they they expect it to be like fat, right? So the first time you ever see this stuff on a deer, if no one's ever taught you how to uh, how to how to deal with it or what it is or why it's not like that nice marbled piece of intramuscular fat on that that uh, you know that uh, that ribeye steak. And then you, you cook it with it on there and you eat it. It kind of tastes like candle wax and it's not very good and it sticks to your teeth. You're like, oh, that, that's, that's useless. Well, because it's not the same thing. When you skin a deer, a lot of times you'll see this kind of jelly-like, more yellowy, gooky stuff. That's more of a traditional fat. And deer have very little intramuscular fat. They have quite a bit of this fat in the form of more of a tallow fat and external between the hide and the body keep you warm fat. And again, it's kind of tasteless. And really to get it into a form that you want it for use, you want to do what's called rendering. And you do that basically by you just cut up a bunch of it into little pieces, put it in a large pot, and you start heating it very, very slowly. And if you want to keep it from burning, you might add a little bit of water, especially in the beginning. And you slowly raise the heat. You don't want to cook it. You want to melt it. Uh, you'll get like this liquid in the bottom. And when you start getting the liquid to kind of boil, bring it really down to a simmer. A simmer is not lots of little bubbles very, very fast. It's very gentle bubbling. Very, very gentle. And the smaller the cuttings you make, the, the quicker you'll get this done, but it does take a while. And you'll end up in the end with like crunchy, crispy cracklings. And I wish I could tell you that they would be wonderfully tasty the way that like a pork crackling is when you do this with pork tallow. Um, but you, it's, it's not. It's, it's not terrible. You probably don't want to eat a bunch of them either. You can salt them and try it. But you've, you've now done it. You've got the tallow. And what you want to do now is pour that into uh, a container. A mason jar is probably perfect. And it'll be clear when it's hot, and it'll solidify into something that sort of kind of looks like lard uh, when, when you're done with it. And with three deer, you can make an awful lot of this stuff. It's highly, highly valuable. It would be good for making your own pemmican. It's certainly edible. 
Uh, it doesn't have a lot of flavor, but then again, that would be good if you were doing something like making pemmican, which is a mixture of, 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 of you know, chopped up beef or in this case, venison would be a much better thing to do. So you got, you know, beef jerky or venison jerky, uh, with some berries and maybe some nuts and some other things into a cake and it acts as a preservative and it adds fat to something that's very low fat and makes it a much more useful food, a high energy food, a brain food. We need fat for our brains to function properly, despite of what modern medicine tells you. But it's also very good for things like treating wood. Um, if you are doing something like you've, you've made a hammer or a, 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 a tomahawk or something or a knife, you've got a wood handle on it, rubbing deer tallow into it is great preservative. It's good preservative for rifle stocks. Um, you name it, if you would seal it with an oil, tallow has been used for it before. Uh, it's one of the best things in the world you could use to season cast iron. Um, if you're seasoning a cast iron skillet, a couple tablespoons of tallow in there, melted into the cast iron, uh, and, uh, and heat it up gently and then wipe down and then maybe, uh, you know, drain it off and, and wipe it down and let it sit and then repeat that a couple times. It's great for seasoning cast iron. Uh, it's used in salves, uh, for, you know, making herbal salves to row in your body. Uh, it's used to make candles. It's used to make soap. There's just a ton of use for it. And if you look up, instead of uses for fat on Google, uses for tallow, right, which is T-A-L-L-O-W, just put in uses for tallow, you'll find a lot more information than you're probably finding by looking for uses for deer fat. And that's one of the key things that we need to understand. And you'll hear a question today later where I called something something it's not usually known as. And because of that, somebody that's looking for it's not finding a lot of information on when there actually is quite a bit of information on it. And it's just something that we tend to do because it's not wrong to call it fat. It is fat. But, again, it's rendered in the tallow, and that's what you call it once it's rendered, and it's not fat the way we generally think of fat in our modern world where we think of this, you know, again, this marbled steak with this juicy wonderfulness on the grill – um, if you cook a piece of deer meat on the grill with a big hunk of tallow on it, you're not going to get that. Re- you're not going to get that result. And I think it's why many people have largely, in modern society, just tossed away all that wonderful fat, uh, tallow, wh- whatever you want to call it, because we've, we've stopped realizing what it's good for. And you know what it's good for? Cooking. It's good as a cooking oil. It's good as a cooking fat because it's so neutral tasting. You want to fry or saute something in deer towel, it comes out wonderful. If you render it first and just use the liquid slash lard-like form of it, it's great for it. It's probably not going to be usable as lard. I've never tried baking with it. I don't bake much anyway. It's probably not going to be highly usable that way. Um, but from a standpoint of frying and sauteing, it's great. I saw a video where Dave Canterbury made some, uh, basically some corn hush puppies on the trail using deer tallow, and he said it was fantastic. I have no reason to doubt it. I've even used it to cook deer. So, you know, you're going to saute up some, uh, some tenderloins, and you take the tallow and you put that in your pan and you season them up and fry them in there. It works great. Again, it just needs to be rendered first. So great question. And again, I wouldn't even worry about deer tallow. If you put in uses for tallow, anything that you find is going to be viable for use with deer tallow, at least to my knowledge. Let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. This is Stephen from North Carolina, and I have a question for Stephen Harris regarding EMP-proof generators. I guess the question is, is there such a thing? I'm interested in buying a generator for my home for backup power. I'm inclined toward a natural gas generator since I have natural gas pipe to my house already for heating and cooking. Ideally, I'd still like to have a functional generator if there was an EMP or other event that would fry most electronics. I suppose I could construct a large Faraday box to, con- to cover the generator for day-to-day storage, but that doesn't seem to be very practical for backup power uh, if I need it for something less catastrophic like a storm. Um, so I'd appreciate your thoughts, and thank you both, Stephen and Jack, for all you do to share your knowledge. Uh, this is one I definitely sent over to Stephen Harris. Um, I have my thoughts, but I think what you're about to hear will make them a little bit more clear. Mr. Harris. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny, consume you at will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Steve from North Carolina. This is Steve Harris on the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Here's a short of it. You're not going to EMP proof your generator. There is going to be no EMP. That's a short answer, not a longer answer. When people start thinking about EMP, it's a sickness. It's a disease. It robs you from the inside out, and you always put everything to the test. Is it EMP proof? And since nothing is, you'll end up with nothing, and you'll have nothing when the real disaster that Jack and I keep on preaching about hits. So when you have the blizzard, you want to have stuff for the blizzard, for the hurricane, for the tornado, for the flood, for the power failure, etc. You want to have stuff for that is real, that is stuff you know about and stuff that is really going to happen rather than stuff that is not going to happen. That is why I use that quote from Yoda that I just played. Once you start down the path of EMP, forever will it consume you. Now, some science. All explosions in Earth's atmosphere produce an EMP. It's just because when they detonate, they make a plasma, which is a high-temperature gas, Actually, it's fourth state of matter, but think of it as a high-temperature gas. And it does this inside the Earth's magnetic field. Even a firecracker in a trash can makes an EMP pulse. You can put a, get a trash can, wrap wire around it, like 100 feet of wire, put a voltmeter on it, light a firecracker, throw it into the trash can. When it goes pop, you will get a spike on your, me- on your meter, and you produce a little EMP pulse. Okay, a little itty-bitty one. It's not going to do nothing, okay? It's got less power than a mouse fart. Now, in the world of nuclear weapons, there are fission weapons and there are fusion weapons. The first atomic weapons that we made were fission weapons. This was the gun-type weapon, and this was the compression, the weapon that compressed plutonium to make a critical mass that formed an explosion. Now, these produce an EMP as well. However, the EMP pulse produced at Hiroshima and Nagasaki went out a certain distance. So the nuclear bomb detonated, you got prompt radiation, you got prompt light, you got a prompt EMP pulse. 
The thing is that EMP pulse went out, and it only has an effective distance, and that effective distance is less than the blast wave. So great, you get an EMP pulse that might harm your, potentially harm your electronics, and then the blast wave comes away and blows you and the house and everything away at two, three, four hundred miles an hour. So, what does it take to make the real EMP pulse that you are theoretically scared of, which is not going to happen? It takes a fusion weapon. These are weapons classed in the megatons. Fission, fission weapons are kilotons, thousands of tons of TNT. Fusion weapons are megatons, also called hydrogen bombs or thermonuclear bombs. They are in the megatons, millions of tons of TNT. Now, this makes an EMP as well. However, when you detonate one on the ground or slightly above the ground, it makes an EMP pulse. But again, the EMP pulse effective distance is less than the blast wave. So great, you get an EMP pulse, your computer goes blink, you see the bright light, and then the blast wave comes and blows all of you 20 miles down the road. So... And that's what the blast wave does, people. Okay, it just blows everything. It's three, four hundred miles an hour. It just blows everything away. So, in order to do what is the classic sense of EMP, you have to have a megaton type of weapon, and you have to launch it on a rocket above the Van Allen radiation belt, above your target. Okay. Now, in theory, the Russians or the Chinese could do this over one spot in the USA and pretty much get most of the USA in a very bad explosion. That's just it. It's going to take the Russians or the Chinese to do that because making a megaton weapon is not also just a thousand times larger than a kiloton. It is a million times harder, and it is a million times more expensive to make a fusion weapon than it is to make a fission weapon. A dear friend of mine and mentor of mine who's now deceased, Ed York, designed nuclear weapons, and he also designed all of our civil defense against nuclear weapons. His civil defense stuff that you see in shelters, I mean, he's the man who pioneered it. He's the one who taught me all my EMP stuff. So, I mean, so you got these little podunk, third-world, hole-in-the-cave nations making nuclear weapons, North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, okay? These little places are not going to make a fusion weapon. They are going to make a fission weapon. They don't have the money. They don't have the talent. It's literally a million times more expensive, and they're spending lots of their GNP already on it. And it's a million times harder to make a fusion weapon than it is a fission weapon. The United States spent trillions of dollars on this to do it the way they do it today. The Russians are not going to nuke us because they have interdependent trade with the United States. The Chinese sure as heck aren't going to nuke us because how much of our debt do they owe? Okay, we are an interdependent, globally connected world now on trade. They just are not going to go off and kill their best customer. It just does not work that way. Well, you, whether you agree or disagree, I don't know. Some of you out there are probably hollering at the radio right now. But I'm sorry. These are the facts as I know it. Now, your silly little Faraday cage. People think I can go get some window screen or some copper. I can make a Faraday cage, and it's going to protect whatever I put into it. No, it's not. Okay? You need to have a very well-engineered special material, special thickness, Faraday cage in order to protect from a real EMP pulse, which is not going to happen. Did I mention that? 
So as an example to you, to prove to you, because you don't believe me, go get an FM radio. See, an EMP pulse is made up of two parts, two waves. One is a very long wave that comes from the depression of the Van Allen radiation belt through the Earth's magnetic field. Okay, The other one is a bunch of frequencies about from 200 to 800 megahertz. And that is what really fries your electronics is that one. Uh, the one that gets the transmission lines is the long wave that I mentioned about. So go get an FM radio and tune it up someplace to a powerful station up near 108 megahertz and turn it all the way up, okay? So you got the radio going full boom. Wrap the radio in aluminum foil. I'm talking like a transistor radio, people, okay? You can hold it in your hand. Wrap it in aluminum foil. Now take the aluminum foil radio and put that inside of a candy tin like you might get hard candy in for Christmas. That's a metal box. Now take that metal candy tin, metal box, and put it inside of a popcorn tin, which is, you know, about big enough to hold a basketball. And people give them away this time of year around Christmas as present. So now you got aluminum foil wrapped radio inside of a candy tin inside of a popcorn tin. Take that popcorn tin and put it inside of a metal trash can with a lid. Now go to wherever that FM transmitter is for the radio station and drive right up to the fence, right up to the tower. And you know what? I bet you you'll be able to hear that FM radio playing inside all that shielding. So if this doesn't protect your electronics, what do you think an EMP pulse is going to do that's a million times stronger, millions of times stronger than you standing next to that FM radio station tower? It's not going to do very much. You are completely vulnerable. The good news is it's not going to happen. So don't worry about it. Don't use it as a yardstick or a measure for your preparedness. It's not going to happen. It's not going to get you. Just buy regular electronics and use them for the disasters that are going to hit you. And I think Jack will have some nice words about that. And this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Thank you very much for calling the question. I mean, even if we disagree, and I, I try to explain the science to you so you can understand and agree, uh, very good question. And hey, guys, at knowledgepublications.com, I have 20% off of all books and DVDs, only books and DVDs with the coupon code BLACK20. That's B-L-A-C-K-2-0. No spaces, no nothing. Upper or lower case works just fine. And as always, all my stuff I've done with Jack is at solar1234.com. Thanks, Steve, for calling in a good question. I hope some more of you guys can call in even better questions. And uh, I'll talk to you next Friday. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye. A very detailed, well-explained answer by Stephen Harris. Um, if I was going to answer the question, all I would have said was, If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny, consume you at will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Hey, Jack. This is Chet Manley on the forum. Um, I was listening to your previous podcast, uh, Listener Call-In Show, and you made a comment that really, really piqued my interest. You said... When you were in the Army at 19, you were in the best shape of your life, and you were considering joining the Special Forces, also known as the Green Berets. Um, but you got sane over the next year, is what you said, and you decided not to re-enlist. I was wondering if you could touch on that a bit. Um, I, I've been listening for a while, and I've never heard you mention anything about necessarily uh, maybe on the show with uh, 
Joe Riles um, from Dunamis, you mentioned a little bit, but I was wondering if you could touch on why you decided not to re-enlist. And um, as a 24-year-old young guy hating my office job here, um, you know, the military and that kind of uh, sense of adventure is always calling. And um, I was wondering, obviously for myself, because of current geopolitical things going on, as well as leadership issues, as well as things going on with the military generals, you know, kind of uh, steering myself away from that. But I was wondering what you were thinking, because obviously those comments of getting sane has to touch or at least overlap on some of those same issues. Thanks, Jack. Uh, let's start out with what I mean by I got sane. I wish I could tell you that at like 19, going into 20, I had this libertarian epiphany and decided that, um, that my talent and time was better spent, um, working for freedom and liberty than, than being part of a apparatus of force. I, I wish I could tell you, but it, it's not what I meant by it because it's not where I was at that point in my journey. What I meant was, I got sane because I realized I was doing it all out of bravado and what sounded cool. So I was an airborne qualified guy. I was rapidly moving uh, up in, in promotion, mainly because of a strategic decision. And I'll tell you the strategic decision. I knew how Army promotions worked. And one of the reasons I went to be a mechanic wasn't just because I liked it, because I wanted to be a heavy wheel mechanic. That MOS doesn't even exist anymore. And I'll tell you why it doesn't exist. It was combined with another uh, discipline, uh, light wheel mechanic. I was a heavy wheel mechanic and a third shot mechanic, a 63 whiskey. All were put together as one because no one wanted to do my job. My job involved you know, working with vehicles that you needed a forklift to change a tire. It was a very hard job. It, they were very large, heavy vehicles that required a lot more work. I actually liked them because it was easier to get your hands into places. Uh, unfortunately, I ended up doing an awful lot of 63 Bravo light wheel work on things like Humvees, which have a lot of places that are very hard to get your hands. Which is, But the main reason I went in there with that MOS is the, the promotion points were very, very low to get promoted. Because there were so few, the MOS or the job, okay, using military words here, was 60% under strength. Well, that pretty much means that once you, you move up into the realm of where you can, you can, you are eligible to become a sergeant, uh, you go to a, a school called PLDC, Primary Leadership Development Course, and you're gonna get promoted. Um, because there's a point system that says once you have X, and they do it based on need. So it was a very rapid advancement. Uh, job. So that was part of why I took it because I came from this, you know, coal country background, didn't know what I was going to do and thought I might stay in for retirement. The faster I get promoted, the better that would be for me. Uh, I kicked around ideas like, well, I'll go to college while I'm in the army, uh, get out, use my GI Bill, finish my college and go back in as an officer. There were all kinds of ideas going through my head. One day I met a guy that was you know, kind of sent around to do special forces, forces recruiting. Now, this is not to say like they came for me. I, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way. Like, we, you, we have attracted our attention. No, no. It was just like anybody can try to do this. And what these guys do is they go out and they go through units and they go and they talk specifically to people that already have some qualifications like being moderately to decently bilingual and having airborne qualification. That would be and high test scores, right? You've got those three, 
you're kind of like, well, you know, you could, you could at least try out to get in the program. And we want as many people to try as possible so we can find the best of who tries out. So this is no guarantee that I would have ever been accepted or made it. I have no idea. Um, looking at some of the things those guys go through, I don't know if I wanted it bad enough. Might, might also be part of it. But they come out and they razz you up, man. They tell this is the, you came in to do this and you went to airborne school and you know, you're a smart guy and like, you know, we have, you know, E7s are squad leaders in special forces. This is, I mean, that's some of the type of thing they really tell you. It's rapid advancement. You do what really matters. You ain't gonna end up in some Mickey Mouse unit. All of this stuff. And you start, and, uh, and they start talking and you start th seeing in your head these movies that you've watched and you start thinking about the people around you and going, these guys really aren't who I'd want at my side if I had a choice in a conflict that I, I would want to, and you start getting this bravado and a little bit of fear that if I'm going to be in the shit at all, because you realize by now that like just because you're a mechanic doesn't mean you won't ever be in the shit, um, I would want this, this better class of people. I'd want to be in the front and know what's going on. And, and But the bigger thing is the bravado. The I could go back home and tell my buddies I'm a Green Beret. Buddy, they play that up. Those recruiters, they play that up. And they don't really want that. They want whatever it takes to get you into the crucible. And brother, by the time you come out of that crucible, that will be gone from you. Either your motivation was wrong and it won't get you through it, or your motivation was wrong, but you find something else inside of you and you have a new motivation and you become one of these very, very special special warriors. And what I mean when I say I became sane is two different worlds of becoming sane. One was not doing it, just not going to raise your indoctrination or special forces school because I would have had the wrong motivation and I doubt I would have found it. It would have been a waste of my time and the military's resources and it just isn't what I really wanted to do. And when I say I became sane, my logic overrode my bravado of just wanting to be. And that's, understand something. When you're recruited toward the military, they sell you this image of this tough soldier that you want to be, and the best of them don't ever match the image. They're very soft-spoken, very, very good at what they do. But they sell you that image because that's what you buy when you don't know any better. Well, I got to know better. I started. I actually did quite a bit of work with a group called the 617th um, Special Operations Airborne Detachment, uh, and I actually ended up detached to that detachment for a while. And I worked around some of these men, and I learned what they really were. And while it was a great honor to serve along their side, it wasn't really what I wanted for myself. So that's what I mean by I became sane, to not do that. Um, to the comment of, not being, of becoming sane and not re-enlisting, The Army was the wrong place for me. I'm grateful for the time I had there. I think it formulated a lot in me. I think in some ways, the Army is just not my path. And in some ways, I had some issues with my own attitude that I, if I was going to be in the military, I wasn't ready yet. That I had too many of my own ideas and the things that I wanted to do. And maybe it's not, maybe it's then that I would never be ready. There's a certain amount of conformity required to be in a military uh, position. Um, there's regulations and rules. And if you listen to the show, you know I'm not big on regulations and rules. And in time, I realized that I was never going to be okay with that. And it wasn't the right thing for me. That I might be very good at my job, and I might be a pretty damn good soldier. And I might be pretty good with a rifle, even. 
but and I might be able to hike and 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 pack a pack and all of those other things. That didn't mean that it was right for me. And so when I say I became sane at that point, I don't mean that I figured out that maybe it wasn't the best path for most people. I figured out it wasn't the right path for me, and I I, I got my sanity back over my bravado. Uh, and I also felt like I'd already done enough, you know. I'd already done enough. I went to quite a few schools while I was in. I worked with some really cool people. I worked on some cool projects. Um, I certainly did more than most people that would go in to be a mechanic and, and spend three years in service would have done because I broke the main rule, which is never volunteer for anything. I volunteered for everything. I went to every school, class, opportunity I could get my hands on because I rapidly had gotten to the point where I knew I probably wasn't going to stick around. So I might as well do whatever I could while I was there to get as much out of it as possible. Um. Then do I join today? Not me, but do you? Does anybody join today? I, this is one of the most difficult things for me to answer. I would never join the military today myself personally, especially at the age you know, I'm at in my 40s. Um, I struggle with this because there's so much good that can come from a military career or even uh, time in the military. I think that... I owe so much of what I have today from from my years in the military. I, I really do. I don't think that I realized them, uh, or or actually was able to capitalize on them very early. I think for the first couple of years after I got out, I kind of drifted around, found a decent job, started making some money, and I think as I advanced in that job and got some leadership opportunities, that leadership training kicked in, and I just stood up and led. And I think that led to advancement. I think it led me to you know by the time I was twenty six. I was a VP of sales for Fluke Networks, um, and having never been to college, I mean, I think that it led there, but I don't think it was like it had to slowly roll itself out over time. So there's that. Um, I think that the military is often asked to do things that I wish they wouldn't do, but I would rather good, honest people who care and who will take their oath seriously be there to temper that than have them not be there and have it all be automatons that will do whatever they're told without question. So telling good people not to join to me is hard because even though I don't like what the apparatus of force will do, I know that without good people that it will be a worse application. So it's, 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 it's trying because I know you can gain from it and I know that good people are needed. Really good people are needed there. But I know that if you want to find the people that are most opposed to much of what we're doing throughout the world today, it's always the ex-military person who who has a new view of patriotism and who's not so gung-ho on blowing something else up. The people that are always like, it's the American way and it's patriotic and never we, we should fight whatever war, those people are never the people that did it. They're never the people that wore the uniform. They're never the people that served. The, even the ones that are a little bit that way that served always have it tempered. The ones that run at the, off the mouth, off at the mouth the most about what we need to be doing and where we need to be doing it, they're either recently out of the military and haven't had enough time to process it yet and defending what they did. Um, Or more often, they've never served. Now, they might have a brother who served, and all of a sudden they think that they're in, that they have the same authority to speak on it because a son or a brother or an uncle or a father served as the person that actually, and you don't. I'm sorry. Um, it's not that I don't, you know, appreciate your sacrifice, but knowing someone, even someone you dearly love who served, does not give you a credential of having served. 
And I'd say if there's any exception, it would be a military spouse that spent time on deployment throughout the world with her husband. That is some level of a credential to me. But if you sat your ass here and bolted wheels on cars in a factory in Tennessee while your brother-in-law or your brother or your cousin or your best friend from high school was over in Afghanistan, you don't have a credential. You have a story and one that maybe has some honor in it and should be honored and listened to, but you don't have a credential of the worldview of a soldier because you knew somebody. And some people speak like they do. And I don't know. All I can tell you now is when I, when I hear things like fighting for our freedoms... I question it vigorously. How much of our freedoms are our men who are being shot at today fighting for in the middle of Afghanistan right now? How much of our freedom are they really ensuring? And, and, and my view is, at this point, very little. There is very little. Now, this is, and this is where people get into the whole thing. You can support the troops and not support their mission. They say, you can't do that. You damn sure can. You damn sure can understand and respect the men serving and still think they don't belong where they've been placed. And it's one of the greatest lies in our society that you can't have a line between those two things. It's bullshit. And it's, it's said to you because nothing other than your blind patriotism is good enough for the people in control and the people in power. They want your blind allegiance to patriotism. And they want, if not, they want you outcast into those American-hating hippies. Right? They don't want anybody thinking logically in the middle here going, I know this guy that's over there. He's a good guy. There's got to be more guys like him in there. But I still don't think we need to be there. They, that, that is dangerous to the current power mechanism, the current power paradigm. Because it, 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 it stops us and them. Or actually, it, it creates the only real form of us and them that exists. Us. 99% of the population. Them, the 1% in charge. Notice I didn't say the 1% of the most wealthy people in the world. Or the 1% of the wealthy. I said the 1% of the people in charge. Some of those people are wealthy, some not so much. Some have money, some have power. And some use power to get money, and some use money to get power. But when I say that them, I'm talking about the people really in charge. Not the guy down the street in the nice neighborhood that busted his ass and is worth $100 million. That guy is small potatoes in that world. A congressman worth two or three million has more power in many ways than that guy ever will. The guy that has power through money alone is the guy with, you know, $500 million, a billion dollars, that club of people. And those people use law enforcement and military all the time to put their will on other people. And it leads people in my space, you know, the anarcho-libertarian space, to say, well, then they're all wrong. They're all bad. And, they should, and see, that, that problem with that, fan, I call it fantasy anarchism. That you can just say, well, that no, that should never, it, it doesn't, it's not supposed to happen, it shouldn't happen, it's all wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't jive, it doesn't justify against the real world we live in today. Because you're not going to push an anarcho button, have everybody get along, and everybody have their own place, and everybody govern themselves. If you're ever going to move toward that ideal, there has to be a decoupling of the machine along the way, and people need to start thinking for themselves. 
And until such time, we have to deal with the real world that really exists, not some stupid crap over a cup of tea that we're fantasizing about, performing mental masturbation about. There will be people breaking into houses and raping women. Well, in an anarcho world, there'd be people that would do something about that, even though nobody told them to. And I get that, but that's not the world we live in. So some person called a police officer has to respond to that. Some person called a detective has to research that. And some group of people serving as a judge and a jury have to deal with the person caught to determine whether he's guilty or innocent. And that machine for now must exist. There's no doubt that it's too large, that it needs to be decoupled. And there's no doubt that I'd love to see it all go away someday and us live in this kind of anarcho world where people self-govern. I think it's the only true valid source of government. But if you want the governance to go away, first you must self-govern. And again, from this question I got off into this tirade, but um, it's a fantasy that will just have everybody not join the military and the military will go away. It's a fantasy. And if we had all good people not join the military, then what do you have? But you have a craving for adventure. There's a lot of ways you can get adventure without signing away your life. And anybody considering the military, you better understand this. You are signing away your life. You are signing away your rights. There was some crap that went along around a few years ago about a soldier that got in shit because he was handing out Bibles in Iraq. And they were saying, he doesn't have a right to free speech. What about his right to free speech? You don't have a right to free speech when you are a soldier deployed overseas. You don't have, you have, you have put aside that right to serve. And that's just one right you will give up when you become a member of the military, when you put your hand up and you make an oath. That's one right you will abdicate. It doesn't mean you don't ever have a right to free speech. You do not have a right to free speech in the performance of your duties. You don't. Because you are subject first to obey the orders. As long as they're lawful and not immoral, you are subject to obey the orders of those appointed over you. And if the order is, stop doing that, then you stop doing that, whatever it is. Nothing illegal about it? Nope. Military has the authority to ask that out of its soldiers? Yep. Is it immoral? Are you, are you, you know, if, if you're ordered to dip people in acid and watch the skin melt off, that would be immoral. You don't follow that order. Not to do something? Pfft. Don't don't talk about this. Don't do that. You know, you might not like it. And it might be completely wrong that anybody be told not to do it. But once you put the uniform on and take the oath, it becomes right that you obey. Because you agreed to. And for all my anarcho buddies out there, Most of you believe that if a man enters into a contract, he should be bound by it. If he enters into it under free will. Well, there ain't been a draft since the 70s. And that's the free will contract that's entered into. And I think far too many people don't think about that contract. And part of my sanity was realizing the serious nature of that contract, which you do not realize when you're 17, which is how old I was when I joined. When I realized the serious nature of that contract, I got sane and said, this isn't for me. I think for a lot of people, it might make sense that you realize that before you spend three or four or six or eight years of your life to figure it out. Because in many ways, 
The army is counseling. It's a place where troubled people go to work out their lives and figure out what they want. And it's not bad for that. But there might be better ways to do it. It's a hard question to answer. That's the best I've got. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. My name is Brian. I'm in central Indiana, and I have a question for Darby Simpson. I have 14 lane hens that I used to let completely free range. However, a few weeks ago, I put a pin up around their coop, and it's actually, the pin is about 25 feet by 50 feet, so it's a pretty good size uh, area that they have to, to roam around still. And around the time I put that up, they had started to slow down a little bit on their egg production. However, since I put them in, I it went down to just a few eggs each day and then one egg each day, and now I'm not getting any eggs ever, uh, or at least for the last few days. And it may go back up to one, or uh, it kind of goes back and forth between one and, and no eggs any day. So. Uh, I know they're going to be laying less eggs now that it's colder out and they're not getting as much sunlight, but I was wondering if there was anything else I could do, I guess, just to see if I can get them laying more eggs or if I just need to start over. Uh, some of the chickens are a little less than a year old, and then some are about a year and a half. Um, so they should still be laying eggs from what I understand. Um, but any help you can give me, that would be uh, appreciated. Thanks. Hello, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Brian's question about his laying hens who have dramatically dropped their egg production after a move to their new home. Now, for everyone's benefit, I wanted to let you know that Brian also emailed me some additional details after he called in his question to Jack, and that is that he uh, he feeds his chickens a mixed and bagged chicken feed as well as some corn, both of which he gets from a local tractor supply store. Now, Brian, what I think has happened, at least initially, is that by moving the birds from one system to another, you simply shocked and stressed them. And laying hens show stress by not laying eggs for you. They're quite finicky about their surroundings, their habits, and their routine, and even a little change can have a dramatic impact on egg production. A major change, like switching up their entire living environment, will have profound implications on them. And in this case, while you didn't mean to, you also changed their diet because they can't free-range as much as they used to and they're now eating more grains to make up that caloric intake. If you couple that with the fact that we are losing daylight, as you already mentioned, egg production is going to go down this time of year anyway. The changes you made, I think, simply accelerated that. When it comes to laying hens, anytime you make a change, like where the nest box is located, where they roost, where they live, what they eat, it is going to affect production. The more you change, the worse it will be and the longer it can take for them to bounce back. Now, eventually, they're going to be just fine. They'll get used to their new surroundings and they'll start to come out of this. But don't be surprised if it's spring before you really see them totally recover. Also, something I should mention is that at a year and a half of age, they also could be going through a molt, which is almost going to completely halt production. And then lastly, something I should mention also is that if the area they are now using as a run has at any time in the recent past been treated with chemicals or something like Roundup for weed control, that could also play a role in egg production going down. Now, you ask, do you need to start over? Based on their age, I would say no, you don't. I think that's really uncalled for here. Being that they're a year and a half old, they're going to be productive for you for at least another full season and probably two. I would, however, suggest starting some new birds this spring to replace some of the older, non-productive ones next fall or the following year. 
to do that, one trick that I have learned, and I'd encourage you to do this, is to pick a different breed and color than what you currently have, and this will make it easy to rotate them out based on color because you'll know who is young and who is old. Now, what can you do to fix this current situation? <clears throat> Honestly, just don't change anything else for a while and implement any new changes slowly. When the weather permits, if you can, I would let them range outside of the run by using portable netting if at all possible. You're going to find that this spring they'll deforest that run in no time. And the more ranging they do, the happier they're going to be, and the happier they are, the more eggs are going to lay. And obviously, the eggs are going to be healthier for you because they're going to contain more nutrients. If I were going to change anything else, I would encourage you to buy a high-quality feed that is consistent in content. Feeds from Tractor Supply and places like that can be very inconsistent in quality as well as quantity of the different inputs. Not to mention, if you get some feed with an extra dose of herbicide or pesticide in it, that's going to affect their production as well. Now, since you live in central Indiana, we've got a great resource here locally, and I would suggest that you contact Central Indiana Organics and ask them about getting a bag of their organic 16% later ration. I think you'll find that this really doesn't cost a whole lot more than the bagged feed you're getting from Tractor Supply currently. In my experience, inconsistency in feed is the fastest way to negatively impact egg laying, and I, qu I really question the quality of what Tractor Supply carries. Now, while switching feed can be a detriment on production, honestly, you can't really get much worse results than what you are currently. So if there's a time to change, I think that that's now. Brian, thanks for calling in your question for me. I really enjoyed being able to answer it, and I hope that your birds turn things around for you this spring. To learn more about me, please visit DarbySimpson.com. Also, I wanted to give a quick update on the Midwest Sustainable Conference that we are putting on here in Indy this coming January. As many of you may have heard, in episode 1249, Jack encouraged those of us in a position to do so to pay it forward by educating those who are eager to learn a new skill so that they might better their own financial future. That really struck a chord with us, because honestly, without Jack and without TSP, there would not be a Midwest Sustainable Conference to even talk about. And we really want to give back to this community. We are in a position to pay it forward, so this is what we're going to do. At this workshop being held on January 11th and 12th, we are going to award two scholarships to attend the class free of charge. One scholarship will be given to a young person aged 14 to 23, the other to a retired or active duty military veteran, both of whom will have to write a winning essay. If the conference is something you would like to attend, but you have a legitimate financial hardship and meet the criteria for either scholarship, please visit our website at midwestsustainable.org and submit an essay. You can find all the details on the website. All entries are due for this by December 31st, and the winners will be contacted privately just after the new year. For anyone else interested in attending, you can also register by visiting midwestsustainable.org. I'd like to mention that we are currently over one-third sold out, so please don't wait until the last minute to register. Also, we have a special uh, room rate at the hotel where we're hosting the event, but that rate is only guaranteed until December 20th. This is going to be an awesome event, and you'll be blown away by the amount of information we're going to cover and the value you receive for your money. Jack, as always, thanks for having me back on. Take care. Hi, Jack. This is Phil from Australia. I've got a question regarding compost. Specifically, I'm wondering what to do when collecting green material through weeding and other activities. It seems, though, if you just threw all those green materials into a compost bin or a compost pile, that it would come out of balance and wouldn't work very well. Watching the Jeff Lawton video on compost as part of the online PDC, 
it was clear that browns were far, there were far more browns in the pile than there were greens, and it would seem that you would have the opposite if you just threw your greens in as you went. I'm wondering, should I be laying the greens out and allowing them to dry out, much like turning grass into hay, before putting them in a compost? Or whether you have a better solution for what to do with uh, those materials you collect as you go, rather than uh, building a Jeff Lawton-style compost pile when you have all the materials on hand when you start. Anyway, I love the show, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on my question. Thank you for your time. It's a good question. I understand why people struggle with it. Um, to, to understand what we're dealing with here, the first thing you have to understand is that green and brown are relative. Um, chicken manure is a green, even though it would not look green. Uh, if you green chicken manure, you probably have something going on that's not good. We have to argue about that, I guess. Um, cow manure is a green. These are high. It's about nitrogen. Which one has nitrogen? Which one has carbon? So if you take a whole bunch of green grass clippings and dry them out. What you've effectively done is lost the nitrogen, left the carbon, and turned a green into a brown. The, the only difference between, let's say, um, hay, old hay being a brown, and it being a green is that it was hayed, and it was left, and it, 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 it turned brown, and it got hard, and you're left mostly with just a carbon core. So if you take and you dry out your grass clippings, you've turned a, brown, a green into a brown. So you're right. Generally speaking, you're looking for about a 15 to 1 ratio. Greens to brown, 15 carbons to 1 nitrogen. And it might help us to start just saying a carbon-nitrogen ratio instead of saying green and brown so we understand things like manure are part of our nitrogen. Um, but... Your point really is more, okay, look, I'm, I'm, I'm collecting a lot of stuff. And let's say I have a, a, a mate or I have a, a lawn that I'm mowing myself or a friend that's, that's mowing lawns and I know it's good quality greens and I bring them to me and I want to use this in my compost. How do I store this? Um, there's a limit to how long and really what you can do as far as storing them, but I will tell you this. If you make a big pile of lawn green clippings, Basically, you end up as an anaerobic environment and kind of a stasis in, inside of it. It'll get a little bit hot and it'll break down a little bit, but it'll stay wet inside. If you don't turn it and if you don't put any extra carbon in there with it, it's almost like a silage type of thing at that point. So if you made a big pile of just your greens and when you were ready to compost, pulled out the centers from those piles you got plenty of green matter still left in there that's still going to have lots of nitrogen. It's still going to act like green. But then understand, there's other things that you can be using. So if you have a chicken house and you put straw in your chicken house and your birds poop on the straw and you're pulling that straw out, that straw is covered in chicken droppings. The chicken dropping portion is now best thought of as a green and the straw itself is a brown. Right, So now you could, if your chickens have pooped enough, in theory, just take the straw out of a chicken coop, not do anything else, wet it down, tarp it, and start turning it, and you should get a pretty good compost. It might not be the perfect compost, but it'll work. Because there's plenty of nitrogen, poop, and plenty of brown, green. Let me tell you what we do. We do exactly what I just said. We have a chicken coop and a goose coop, and they poop all over the straw. 
And we just let them poop, and we let them poop, and we let them poop. And when it starts to smell a little off, we don't clean it out. We put another bale or two in there. We let them do it again. When it starts to smell a little off, we do that again. After about three times that we've made this deep litter, we have enough volume to put a big compost facility together. All of our kitchen waste, we have some little cages we made out of basically chicken fencing. We just made a circle. They're about, oh, I don't know, two and a half, three feet in diameter. And we just throw all of our chicken scraps in there, our kitchen scraps in there. When we butcher birds, we throw feathers in there. We, we soak blood into wood chips and throw that in there. If we start to get any kind of smell or too many insects or anything, we put a layer of wood chips or brown leaves or hay over top of that layer and just keep going. You would think you're going to get a lot of compost action out of it. If you don't turn it, you won't. You're going to lasagna fashion now. You're just giving just enough carbon to soak up some of the stink and keep the, the whole thing down. When we're ready to do a compost, all we do is take that straw and we mix it with all those scraps. That's it. We build our pile and we go from there. We try to do at least a cubic yard of compost at a time. Now, Jeff's got this new thing about doing it in consort, consort with your chickens, putting it where you want, running your chickens there, letting them help process it, moving your chickens on, and then finishing it without them. Sounds like a great idea. We'll probably start working with that. Um, but in the end, I think the biggest thing to take away with composting, don't get too worried about it. Don't get too worried about it. In the end, if you mix a bunch of organic matter together with some greens and some browns, and you turn it, if it gets good and hot, you're doing it close enough to right, it'll work, and you'll end up with a decent end product. I mean, that's that's simple as I can make it. There's other ways to do this. I know that a facility down the road that does this commercially has about a two-acre field. And these guys are making metric tons of compost. And they build a pile about a foot deep, two acres broad, with a mixture of everything in there. And they just keep spraying it to keep it damp. And then they turn it, and they spray it, and they turn it, and they spray it. Now, they're not doing all two acres at once in the same phase. They have maybe blocks of like a tenth of an acre with access paths in between them and big equipment doing the turning. But they're not doing a giant pile. They're doing a big, flat, broad thing. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. But if you're saving up anything wet... Is best thought of as a green in most is grass clippings, kitchen scraps and all, keeping them in a pile, and then once the pile gets to a certain putt, covering them over with a layer of carbon and continuing to do that, just kind of leave them there. Don't turn them. There'll be some breakdown and all, but when you go and add them into your pile, nature takes over from there. Grass clippings, the, the way I usually use grass clippings, honestly, though, is unless it's winter where there's not a lot of growth, when I'm ready to make a pile, I get my tractor, I go, I look, pick a big, giant, deep area of grass, and I mow it, and I keep mowing it with, and I, you know, instead of mowing back and forth, I run my mower by, and then I turn it around with the blade off, and I come back, and I do it again, and I just keep cutting more and more, but I keep pushing the pile. So every time I'm running, I'm actually running over what I just cut and moving it further to one side. And I keep doing that until it's damn near ready to choke the mower. I have this huge berm, basically, of green matter. And some of that green matter has been put through there five, six, seven times. I get a rake out and a wheelbarrow or the cart behind our little tractor. And I put the fresh cut greens in there. And I add that to my compost. And that cooks hot. 
That cooks like 160 degree hot. When you mix that with chicken manure and goose poo and straw and wood chips and chicken scraps and eggshells. And uh, I've had people say you put eggshells in a compost pile, they're there forever. Mike's statement is nothing's there forever. But even if they are, they're slowly leaching calcium and all. But when you cook them in a, in a, a, a pile like that, when you get that kind of heat and you're turning it and all, man, eggshells break down. They break down just fine. And uh, so we don't do a lot of extra work to break anything down. That's how we do our composting. I would just say if you're coming across kind of windfalls of greens and you're wanting to save them for later, don't mix anything in with them. Make them into a big pile and understand that as the outside dries, that's kind of becoming a carbon. But you'll end up with this wet, ammonia-smelling thing inside there. You won't smell it because it's cased in. But when you open it, you'll smell it. And ammonia is nitrate, folks. When you smell that ammonia, it almost smells like urine. That's that's nitrogen. And that green will compost just fine. But you, you, you can only do that for so long. But certainly you could, I'm going to have to do a couple composts in my winter time when I don't have a lot of green around. You could lay up a couple piles. So you have two piles, one for each round before you get back into having more greens. And your kitchen waste and all, like I said, you make a bin, you just keep piling it, and then put a layer of carbon, and a pile, and a little... So you have a deep layer, a few inches, and then like this, this thin layer, just enough to cover it up a carbon. Um, it will compost a little bit, but most stuff in there will still be identifiable when you put it into that big compost pile. Now, you can just build one of those, like I just said. You know, like your kitchen waste scraps, everything, layer of carbon, kitchen waste scraps. When the bin gets full, pull the, the metal fencing off of it so you have a loose pile, and just flip it and turn it. And then wet it, and then put a tarp over it so that it doesn't dry out, and then and let some air flow under the tarp. Don't tarp it to the ground. And then turn it every three or four days until it stops getting hot. And most of the time, that'll work fine. You don't have to bring anything else in. But the more input you have in the compost, the more variety, the more diverse the output. Anyway, uh, great question. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is uh, the new mic down here in southern Louisiana, also the turds in the forums. My question is, what are some worthy uses that you can think of for some southern pines that I'm clearing on my property? Also, in general, what are some good tips to keep in mind when harvesting, storing, and handling timbers? Lastly, I might be interested in what you, if you have any good uses for softer wood trees, like sweet gums and large-winged sumacs. People generally consider these quote-unquote trash trees to have no purpose, but I can't see them going to waste, so perhaps culture or something else. Uh, these are the details. I am currently clearing 15-year-old regrowth to the south of my house in order to open up and take advantage of solar aspects. It is currently shading my winter garden, and I will be replacing them with much shorter deciduous varieties uh, to create a very dense food forest and sedge. The majority of these trees I'm taking down are 40-foot-tall pines that are anywhere between 7 to 12 inches in diameter, with a few that are a bit larger than that. As of right now, I've cleared, or I'm clearing about a quarter acre, uh, and eventually it'll expand to about an acre on this boundary. Uh, this has and it's leaving me with full-fledged, decent pines with a multitude of questions of how I can use them well. I consider getting into timber framing, uh, as there's plenty of outbuildings such as barns and sheds that I could definitely use, but I don't really have a lot of experience in this. Um, if there were other trees such as black uh, locusts, you know, I wouldn't even be asking because I could use those just as fence posts. 
I've considered buying my own portable sawmill to make my own boards, but you know I'll uh, I'll continue to do these clearings over the years, and this will be a recurring issue. But naturally, there's initial costs plus any maintenance. I should also say I will eventually be looking to clear most of my eight and a half acres on my property for uh, to create a full-fledged permaculture homestead with much better timbers and nut trees, ponds, and soils. You know, to work. Lastly, I've considered selling them on Craigslist, but that doesn't sit well with me. Um, but a, a small revenue stream to pay for high-quality replacements might not be that bad. So the question is, if you had a trickling amount of pine trees coming in, how would you manage their usage if you were getting a homestead up and going? Are there any ideas that uh, aren't so obvious, like outright selling them, turning them into boards for home use, or just some sort of log frame? Well, thanks a lot, Jack. Um, the, the question here, really, and we should really appreciate this question. And if you notice, Mike asked a longer question than most people, but yet his question got on the air because he asked his question first and then gave the details and called from a quiet area where he was easy to understand and he knew what he was going to ask before he called in. Just a little thought there. Um, but the, the real question, we get to the core, is how do I not squander this resource? I've got this thing that's currently in my way that I'm going to have to take out to do what I wish to do, and I don't want to squander the resource that it represents. Great. So this is some thoughts that I have. Number one, southern pine, uh, which is actually loblolly pine is the, is the, uh, is the common name that you're pro just based on the fact that you're in uh, Louisiana and you're, and, uh, you're calling it southern pine. It's, it's probably loblolly pine. It is a decent timber wood. It's actually cut a lot for timber, um, but it's not a high-quality timber. It's not something that's going to do well in, in any environment other than completely and totally dry. Um, it, it breaks down weather fast, and it's a soft wood. So there's no reason you can't do things like build a pole barn with it, but, you know... You better make sure that none of the, 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 the pine that you're relying on for any structures, uh, is wet, which you don't want to do anyway. But it's, you know, it's really, it's not like doing it with oak or locust or something like that, just to kind of put it in perspective. The big thing, if you're just going to fell them and leave them as logs, that means they need to be stored somewhere where they get air circulation around them and they're drying a lot of dried out. Then it'd be better to process them immediately. But as just flat timbers, They'd be okay that way. They can go in the ground and do work as a timber. They're just not a long-term timber. Um, they last probably longer than you might think in a lot of situations, especially in a well-drained area, but um, I wouldn't use them that way. Uh, as a lumber yield, they represent a lot of opportunity. Um, you mentioned a chainsaw mill. It's probably the best way to go with something like this. Now, you can do a chainsaw mill, that will do an okay job, but be pretty resource intensive as far as you being the resource doing the work and the time that it's going to take, but it's as low as 140, 150 bucks. Uh, Granberg makes a chainsaw mill called the G777, um, that will do an okay job. It, the better the chainsaw, the better the job it will do. It will take a while, but the one thing you do have going for you with pine is it's soft wood. A good chainsaw cuts through that stuff easy. There's a video uh, on Northern Tool 
of this Granberg chainsaw mill. And the guys, I don't know what it is, but it's definitely a hard what he's cutting. And you can see it takes some work to get through it. But I think with a pine, uh, you would do okay with it. And it might be enough given the low volume of, of amount of wood you're going to need. And there's a lot of resource there. Um, so that would be one thing. If you wanted to step up, uh, Northern Tool also has a chainsaw mill that is a much better tool if you're willing to spend up to about a thousand bucks. And it's about the, um, the best product I can find for you, Mike, that's under a thousand dollars. And it's made by a company called Norwood. It's the Norwood Portamill Chainsaw Sawmill. And it seems to be a very good tool for what it's worth. This is one thing I'll say about any chainsaw mill. The weak point will most likely, unless it's a total piece of shit, be the chainsaw. So, you know, you can buy a $150 chainsaw mill, but if you, if you run that with a $100 pulling chainsaw from Walmart, um, you're not going to get the results that you're going to get from a good Husqvarna uh, or a good steel or something like that. You're just not. So the other thing I would tell you is you better get good at sharpening chains. All right? If you're not a good chain sharpener, get good at sharpening chains because you're going to go through chains doing this. Um, you'll probably be the first couple you do, you'll butcher. And then the second couple you do, they'll be okay. And then from there on, you do a pretty good job. With a trickling through, finding something in that price point from a couple hundred bucks to a thousand bucks might be worth it if you can make that much. I mean, if you start adding up lumber costs, um, there's a lot of money there. And this amount of trees over time, it will pay itself back. There's no doubt. Now, if you can sell felled logs on Craigslist, just straight pole, come pick it up, here they are, and you can make some money on it. There's nothing. I don't know why you would have any pause to that at all. Somebody else is going to come get that and do something with it. That's great. You might be able to sell enough of them to pay for a sawmill. Then you might be able to mill some of them, get your own lumber, and sell that lumber. Um, so it might make sense. It's up to you. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about hugel culture. Nothing wrong with turning these logs into hugel mounts. Um, because the question has been asked so many times and answered so many times, people don't want to use pine for hugel culture. Because the question is, can I use for pine for hugel culture? And the answer is always, yes, you can, but it won't last as long because it'll break down faster. And people take that to mean it's not as good, you shouldn't do it, make sure you use hardwood, don't use pine. N none of that's true. All it means is that the pine core will decompose more rapidly than a core made up of, let's say, oak. That's okay. If you're doing a perennial system, you're planting mostly bushes and trees into a hugel system. The, 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 by the time the pine core is broken down, especially with deep, sandy, and clay soils, and in Louisiana, most likely you have a very sandy soil and an underlay of orange clay, and you'll go so far in the clay and you'll get into more sand and clay mixture, and it's a long way down before you find rock. In that system and you build a hugel mound, and that supports your perennials into establishment, and they start driving tap roots and deep roots down into the ground, brother, by the time that core is gone, they don't need it anymore. So there's nothing wrong with it, especially in your environment. So I would take to cutting them down, and you, when you got a pine, you got this. The reason they're used for lumber is not that they make such a high-quality lumber. They grow fast. They grow straight. They don't have a lot of limbs, so they have very few knots comparative to a lot of other trees. But as you go up, they get thinner and thinner and thinner. You get to a point where it really ain't worth it no more. 
I'd be dropping them and topping them at that point. I'd be cutting them up at that point to make them easy to move around, and I would be using those pieces for hoogles and anything else I can come up with. And I would be cutting these poles and reserving them somewhere. If you've got a barn or something like that, you can put them in to keep them dry until you can do something with them. That'd be great. But I'd start looking into, can you sell some on Craigslist? There's nothing wrong with that. Man, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, especially cutting them to length for people. Uh, a lot of people would like that. And can you do some cool stuff? I mean, you take a big, I mean, some of this stuff you're saying is pretty good size. Um, you don't know, cut, just nice and flat on both sides, stripped of its bark, uh, sand it up a bit. Stained on the tops. They make interesting little stools and tables and stuff like that, too. I mean, start thinking about what you can do here. But a sawmill might make a lot of sense to own one here. If you said, I have an, an acre, um, yeah, I don't know. You got seven acres, you're going to clear most of the pine off of it over time. Um, imagine fresh cut two-by-fours. You know, for 50% the price of Home Depot, get in touch with me. I'll let you know what I have and when I have it on Home Depot for the stuff you can't use. And think about all the stuff you could build with that and all the wood that you don't have to buy. But you're going to have to be a good chainsaw maintainer, and you're going to have to be a good chainsaw sharpener and probably a decent chainsaw mechanic in this. You're going to push a saw pretty hard. You're going to need a good saw in this, or you're going to resign yourself to every every year tossing out a pulling and buying a new one, which in itself ain't that ain't that terrible. If you're good at sharpening sharpening blades and you're going to just toss in a $120 pulling once a year, but you're going to cut $1,000 worth of lumber off of it, it's not what I would do, but I can't totally fault it. Um, pullings are actually a good little saw. They just have a, a tendency after working them really, really hard to just stop not working so well anymore and just not being worth the time and the trouble and the effort to try to maintain something that costs more to maintain than it costs to replace. Uh, it's a perfect example of designed obsolescence. It's a product, you pull a little pull, especially on pine, you pull a little pull and wild thing out, fire that sucker up, bite into it with a good chain, it cuts. Man, they cut good. And they cut good for, you know, if you're going to use a saw five times a year, buy two of them things. Put one away, and when the first one blows up, pull the other one out and buy another one put it on the shelf. But if you're going to use it heavy, that's not the saw for you. Um, I'll tell you, some of the best saws out there, Husqvarna, uh, a better saw is a steel, in my opinion, but I, I own Husqvarna, and I like it, and I, I couldn't bring myself to spend the extra money on a steel. Uh, Yonserid is another great saw. I think Tractor Supply... Uh, recently dropped Husqvarna and picked up Yonserid. And I think the main reason they did that is just better when it comes to direct customer service being able to get parts. Um, I've had I've had to acquire parts from my Husqvarna, and I couldn't get it through Tractor Supply or Home Depot or Lowe's, and I couldn't get an answer from Husqvarna of what part to buy. There are certain parts that... Little screws and things like that that, that you don't, they don't have part numbers in the schematics. And the only way I could get a dadgone, like for instance, a tension, uh, set screw for the bar was to go to an authorized Husqvarna repair service technician. And it was just, it was a, I'm like, it, I emailed Husqvarna like six times. 
And I'm like, it's a screw. I just need to know what screw it is. I'll buy 16 of them and put them in a jar in case the damn thing ever falls out again. And we ended up having to take this off to a freaking authorized repair guy to get a dadgone screw in it. And I figured since it was there, I had him tune it up for me. But that's an example of why, you know, I think, I, my gut, is that's that's why Tractor Supply made the changes, and that's that's my one complaint with Husqvarna. Runs like a champ, tough ass saw, beautiful saw, but boy, you try to get an answer like what the hell screw is this? And you know it's not even got to be their screw. You just need to know what how long is it, what's the thread count, what is the size. That's all it. It's a it's a machine screw. It, it, there's nothing to it. But I couldn't get an answer, and they wouldn't give me an answer. And uh, so. Next time I'm up for a gas saw, I'm going to check out these uh, these Yonster. I, I, I think they've got something going on. And they are more affordable than a steel. And they're very well thought of from the people I've talked to that have actually used them. Um, but you're going to look at a quality chainsaw. To, and if you've already got one, that's fine. Um, but, you know, I, I look at it this way. That little $150 uh, uh, chainsaw mill... The G777 that I found from uh, from uh, Northern Tool, I talked to him. As long as they have a return policy, if it doesn't work, you know, it might be all you need for the amount you're going to process. Um, personally, I wouldn't do it. Personally, um, I'd be stepping up to something like the Norwood. It's got a lot more control, um, and control is important when you want. Uh, to do the best job you can, and I think it would it would speed things up a lot for you. Um, and I would I would at your acreage seriously consider something along that level of quality. Uh, again, a thousand dollars is a lot of money, but if you start looking at what a thousand dollars buys in, in in timber, it's not that much money. It's it's really not. And if you can build a couple um, sheds and greenhouses out of this stuff, uh, you can recoup the money really really fast. Not to mention, you have now an asset uh, that can be leveraged in other ways. Good call, Mike. Let's take another one. Hold on. Just thinking about this before I go on. I'd like to know if that dadgum little sawmill works. Uh, so I'm going to make you a deal, Mike. Um, that little $150 mill. If you want to give it a try, uh, email me off air and uh, put sawmill in there. And I'll tell you what. I'll spot you $140. Bucks. I think that's what it is, $139. You pay the shipping. And give it a try. And if you'll agree to review it, positive, negative, or otherwise, uh, call that an investment in your your, your land's future there. Uh, if you want to try that little saw right there. If you want to go ahead and get that bigger sawmill, if you'll promise me an actual review with video, um, I'll, I'll spot you the same 140 bucks on a purchase of it. You've done a lot for our blog. You've been a great contributor. It's there if you want it for either one. Either I'll pay 140 of the $1,000 mill uh, or I'll pay the 140 of the $140 mill for you uh, because I'd like to know, and it would give me the opportunity to say we absolutely know that this thing is or isn't worth the effort, uh, and you make the determination for yourself. And if you don't want to do either one, don't feel obligated. Uh, but I am going to hold you to it. If you take me up on it, I expect your review. I expect video. I expect to see if it's going to work or not. Um, I don't expect a professional journalistic piece. But I do expect real-world feedback, and I want to be able to see the damn thing either work or not work, uh, not in the hands of someone who's trained to make it look good, but in some, the hands of someone like someone else who's going to buy it. Uh, so there you go, Mike. That's uh, that's my investment in you and your work uh, for your contributions. Let's take another one. 
Hey, Jack, it's Dan from the frozen tundra of Minnesota. I'm just watching your food forest presentation from your Earth sh- Earthworks workshop, and uh, you give a demonstration of air budding there just briefly. And what I'd like you to do is maybe just walk through the whole steps of doing that. I looked briefly on Google and uh, Bing and did not see anything as far as air budding. So if you could just walk through that, that would be awesome. Thank you. Love the show. Um, the, this is what I was talking about earlier when I said, you know, you use different words and sometimes people have a hard time finding what you're talking about. Um, air budding is a, is a term. It is used. A lot of people use it. It was the first way I ever heard it described. It's why I tend to this day to even use this word, uh, air budding, but it's actually more accurately air layering, uh, which I actually think air budding is more indicative. Uh, I'd say air rooting might be better, but, uh, here's the deal. I, there's not much for me to add. So what I said in my presentation, my, my uh, one-hour, 15-minute uh, food forest presentation from our workshop is available on YouTube for free. Uh, you can uh, see that. I'll put a link in today's show notes, fi- folks. But air budding or air layering, and you'll find a lot more about it if you put air layering into Google than air budding, as I said, um, is a simple process of it's taking a cutting from a tree or a bush or a plant so that you can propagate it from cutting but doing it in a way that increases the survivability of the cutting, and in some instances is necessary because some things won't do well from a cutting straight up. And what you're doing is you take a plant that you want to reproduce, and you cut a little bit into the, the bark. And if you want to, you can put some rooting hormone on there. It will help. And if you don't have any and don't want to buy any, if you have willow, and you take the buds of willow and mash that up, it's very good as a root stimulator. You can put that where you've scarred or kind of messed with the uh, the branch a little bit. You don't have to mess with the branch, but it helps. Uh, sometimes actually taking a good long strip out of it. It all depends on the plant, um, how necessary it is. And then you take, and I like to use a plastic bottle. I cut the bottom off a plastic bottle. Slip the plastic bottle over the branch, put a little hole in the bottle, so you can tie it onto a different something, you know, a little bit more stout, so the whole limb doesn't fall over. But you want it so it is angled downward. However, you put it on there, so you put the bottle on so that the top is is down and the bottom is up, and you've cut the bottom off, and you fill that bottle with dirt and keep it moist. And what will happen is the plant will think that that limb or branch that you have is now covered with earth. It, they'll, they'll think it's fallen to the ground and had something compress it, and it will go, oh, there's an opportunity here to reproduce and to get bigger. And it will send roots out. And it will put roots into that bottle of dirt. And then when you're ready to propagate it, you just cut the limb below the bottle, pull it out, and you've got a rooted start. And you go plant that somewhere else. That's how I explained it. There is nothing more to it. There is no more. There's nothing else. There's no more. The end. Done. That is the whole thing. It is that simple. Now, I took some flack in the uh, presentation. We haven't taken any pictures of where we did this. We did this with muscadines in Arkansas to see if it worked, and it did. Um, but we didn't have any really good pictures of it. So we went on Google Images to find a good picture of it. And in the presentation, we show an example not done with a, a bottle, but just basically a, a plastic wrap bundle. And it's on a cannabis plant. It's on pot. 
And uh, I got some comments about it, like, oh, what are you doing with that? First of all, I don't think marijuana should be illegal. I don't smoke it. I don't think you should either. But making a plant illegal is just stupid. It's the stupidest thing that our government's done this side of the, you know, being unconstitutional. And when it comes down to just plain dumb, to make a plant illegal is dumb. Not to make a refined drug, but a plant. It's just stupid. It's an infringement of our rights. And there's no way on God's green earth it's constitutional. Only in this topsy-turvy, upside-down world is it constitutional to make a freaking plant illegal. But the reality was that it was the best picture we could find. That's what we didn't, we didn't need. I don't even think we even thought about the fact that it was pot. Because Joe and I, when we were putting together the video to go along with the presentation, just went, oh, that looks good. Done. Boom. We Because we don't care. I don't care if you smoke pot, and I don't care that you tell me to do it. I'm not going to do it because you told me to. I don't care that you think it's medicine. I don't care. I just don't give a damn. My thoughts on it anyway. But that's air layering. Now, there's other ways to do this. Let's say you had a bush or a tree with a branch coming off it nice and low, okay, uh, where you could bend it down to the ground. Bend it to the ground, put something heavy on it, cover it with dirt. When it roots, cut it off and, and, and transplant it. Or you can take, if you want to make a hedge out of something that, that, that propagates this way, and most plants will do this. Most It's not like a small list of plants. Most plants will propagate this way. Anything with a woody stem will generally do this, especially a woody perennial. Bring your branch down, put a rock on it, cover it with dirt, get it to root. When it starts to grow, just let it grow. Take another branch off of the new part and drop it to the ground. Put a rock on it, put dirt on it, and let it grow. Take another branch, and you could do this, and you could build a whole damn hedgerow this way. You just you could put together a hedgerow by planting five plants, and you really wanted 50 to make a hedgerow out of them, and you start air layering them straight into the ground until they meet each other. And a lot of plants that you're going to do that with will sucker and they'll pop up, but they'll move a lot faster if you march them that way. You could march entire systems with this. But the, the basics, some way to contain moist soil around the plant, some scarring to the, 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 the cambium so that you're, you're getting in there a little bit. And once it gets enough roots that it's stable, cut it off and plant it somewhere else. You can use a bottle. You can use saran wrap. You can use a plastic bag. What I like about the bottle is it makes it easy to keep an eye on it and keep it wet. You feel it starts to dry out a little bit. Just adds, it's easy to get water in there. I think the best way, if you were using like the bag technique or whatever, is it starts to seem to dry out a little bit. It's basically a hypodermic needle. And just pump a little water in there. I think that would be the easiest way to do that, or like a turkey injector syringe or something uh, to keep water in there. But what, the one thing I left out that will speed it up is, again, rooting hormone, which you can buy in any garden center. You can find rooting hormone. Uh, but, again, if you have willows in your area, one of the greatest rooting stimulators in the world are willow buds. So what you want to do is you find a limb, and right where the new green buds are coming out in a limb, break a few of those off and mash that up and put it on whatever you're rooting. If you're doing a cutting and you're putting it in water. So, like, you can do this with tomatoes. You cut a piece off a tomato, stick it in water, and when it roots, plant it. Well, what you can do is crush up some of the willow buds and put it in the water. That'll stimulate the roots as well. So uh, there's a little add-on for you. Uh, let's take, I think we got uh, one more and we're done. Hey, Jack, this is Tracy, Sweetheart's mom on the forum. I have a question. I took out 
six very large red tip fatinias. These things were huge. And the root balls that I've got left in uh, an area that I'm going to convert to a garden are also huge. Multiple trunks. I have tried digging for hours using a reciprocating saw on over 30 roots per uh, root ball. And I've tried pulling them out with a truck. I can't afford to have somebody come in with a bulldozer and pull them out. So do you have any ideas in a garden area where I don't want to use toxins or poisons on how to get rid of these roots? Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, you, you certainly don't need a bulldozer uh, to deal with this situation. Um, what you probably, your easiest, simplest answer is probably to go down to Home Depot or Lowe's or any type of equipment rental place. And I would call them first, see if they have it, instead of going down there and find out that, they, that location doesn't. You're looking for a stump grinder. Um, a stump grinder will just tear up that stuff. And you don't need to go real, real deep. If you take them down to about four inches below the ground with a stump grinder, put a big, nice layer of compost and topsoil back on top of them and get it all ready to do your planting, leave them down there, you got free culture. Nature did it for you. They will break down, they will rot, they will form fast carbon pathways, and all your plantings on top will tie into that, and they'll do wonderful. A stump grinder or rent, from what I checked out in my area, about $90 to $110 a day. And you need it for maybe half a day. So you go down, you pick it up, you take it back there, you grind the shit out of your root balls, put it back in your vehicle, take it back down there in time for lunch. And then that problem is gone. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it, uh, instead of trying to get them out and, and even trying to grind them subsurface, just cut them down, just cut everything one inch below the surface. Build up four inches and plant in the top and let it go. Don't worry about it. They're down there. Okay, it's okay. I want to plant stuff. wherever. If you're going to plant trees and you have big root balls of your own that need to go in there, now we got to do something. Now we got to figure it out, you know. Um, but just don't plant. If they were spaced out, which they probably were, because red tips are a spreading plant, you've probably got areas that you could just change the where they – don't plant the tree where the, where the red tip was – Plant it to the right or left or where the red and, and interplant that way. That that would work. Use smaller trees. Let them take the time to get in there and do the work for you. But with a stump grinder, you can easily go down six, ten inches and just tear it up. Um, most uh, and then okay, let's say you don't want to do it. You don't want to pick it up. You don't want to rent the equipment, what have you. You just want someone to do that for you. That probably won't cost but a couple hundred dollars. Um, and it, it sounds like you've got more. To- couple hundred dollars of your time, effort, misery, tears, and blood into this project already. And most tree removal companies have stump grinders. They keep them as part of their inventory. Um, because they go in and they cut a pear, a Bradford pear, or some piece of crap tree out of the front yard of somebody that's gotten out of hand. They just need it removed, and they got a big old stump, and they want it gone. So they bring a stump grinder in and grind the stump out. Um, and, and those folks, if you just look for tree removal service in your area and say, I don't need a tree removed, I need some stumps ground out, tell them what you got, you're probably looking at a couple hundred bucks. So you can either do it for yourself for a hundred or hire somebody to do it for two hundred and just grind them and tear them up. And you don't have, again, you don't have to get them all the way out. You just got to get them out enough 
to be able to, to get whatever you want in there. It's good that it's in there. It's organic matter. It's hugel culture. It's awesome. It's just in the way. So focus on only removing what you need to get what you want planted. Well, if you're going to tell me mostly what you're going to plant are like a vegetable garden or something like that, and you're going to plant seeds, take it down an inch below the surface, rake it over, build it up four inches with mulch and what have you, plant into that, and be grateful it's down there. You want to plant bigger plants and trees? Yeah, you're going to have to figure out a way to get some holes into that. But uh, you can do it. It's not that difficult. Stump grinder's the way. Um, bulldozer, not necessary. Now, we had some pretty big bushes in my front of my house, and we had that little 3,000-pound excavator. We put that bucket in the ground. It pulled them right out. Um, so you don't really need a bulldozer. I guarantee you a machine like that would do it, but it's probably overkill, and the cost is probably prohibitive uh, for that type of work to be done. But you don't need a dozer. Stump grinders the way forward. With that, folks, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's a little different, a little less questions, some uh, different openings and some different things that we covered today, and uh, want to look in depth on some philosophical things. Tomorrow we'll have a standalone show. Um, Wednesday, I don't remember what the heck we're doing for Wednesday. It might be another standalone show this week because we had uh, one interview we had to reschedule and one we had to cancel. So I've got an interview on Thursday and Friday. We'll do another show just like this. I need more calls. I do not have enough call volume for Friday. I've got plenty of expert counsel calls uh, for Friday. What I need are calls for me, four or five really good ones. Uh, call me, challenge me, give me your problems. Just make sure you call from a quiet area. Ask your question up front, then give me your details. That's the key to getting a good call in. Remember, you're calling a machine. The machine can't tell you you're not being understood well. Look at your phone. Make sure there's some bars on it. Don't call while you're driving down the road. Don't call while you're running a chainsaw mill, Mike, or while you're on, in, you know, on the back on a motorcycle or something like that because it won't be able to hear you and use your call. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for